Hello? No! What a day of praise it is. We give thanks to the Lord for that opportunity. And this morning we ask the question, what is your concept of God? Is He anything like the God of Mount Sinai? We have come to that point. We're at a very significant uh, part of the book of Exodus. And we're approaching really a third main division of Exodus. This is a key central part, as, as it all is. But as we are at Mount Sinai, or it's also called the Mount of God, we'll remember that this is where Moses had been earlier at the burning bush, and God spoke to him there, and He said He would bring him here to serve God on the mountain. And if you wanted a reference to that, that's in chapter 3, verse 5. Or verse 12, I think. Now, that promise is fulfilled. We're there. If you remember, way back in chapter 3, if you remember, that was back in the spring. Here it is in fall. Almost November. And if you remember that, God promised that He would bring Him there to serve God there, to worship God there. We're at that point... And Israel has to be properly prepared to be able to do this. <laughs> to worship God. This God has been preparing them to a degree so far. They basically just watched what He did uh, when you look back at the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea. Then He started giving them tests and a battle. And now he's got them up to this point where he wants to prepare them a little bit more. They're prepared to an extent. But what they have to be ready for now is the holiness of God. For it is going to be put on display. This is going to be something that they've never seen. They have an idea of what God is like. They don't really know what the holiness of God is. And He's been revealing Himself more and more. And throughout the Old Testament, He keeps revealing Himself. And then, bam! Right at the apex of time, we see Jesus Christ come on the earth. Take the form of a man. And of course, the cross is the ultimate. That's where everything is pointing to. God kept revealing Himself. And in these last days, He has revealed who He is through the person of Christ. We get to look back at that and know what the ultimate revelation is. Of course, He reveals through His Word. What an amazing thing it is. People need to know who God is rather than making things up about Him in their own minds or what they think they hear other people say. We must be convinced by what the Word of God says, inspired, and then bringing to light to us into our minds who He is, what He's about. So now more than ever, we see uh, an aspect of God that hasn't been shown in Exodus. They are going to learn to fear God. I don't think I have seen them have a real fear yet. They may think they might have had fear in those battles and when they were hungry and thirsty, but to fear the Holy Other. The Tremendum. 
This is something. We too have to ever keep learning about the holiness of God. And in our society today and in the body of Christ today, the holiness of God is taken so lightly or not taken at all. It should be ever etched upon our memories that this God is something far above anything that we can put in our heads. We should be fearing Him and trembling at this holy God. That's the aspect we're going to look at today. There's a lot to look at. You know, we throughout the Bible we can see the grace of God and we can see the love of God and the mercy of God and we've seen that. So it's not like we're trying to go on an extreme and just do one aspect of God. We're showing Him all, but sometimes it takes a whole week or sections of weeks to put forth an attribute of God. And so we can't cover all those attributes in one week. We can't cover all the attributes in a lifetime, can we? We can't cover all the attributes in eternity. That's how great this is. So we spend a little hour studying this transcendent one. To transcend is to go over and beyond and above anything any humans can do. So this keeps us from seeing Him as a genie kind of God, getting out of Him whatever we want, whenever we want. Because the Israelites are beginning to think that's the kind of God they had. And boy, what kind of a God would that be? That'd be great, wouldn't it? Well, we think so. But that wouldn't be the God of the Bible. Yes, He does provide for us. So we've seen the God of power and we've seen the God of providence. And He has not had any anger at them. He has shown nothing but mercy and grace. And now... He's showing that I'm not going to be a God who is commanded and gives you whatever you want, whenever you want, just because you think it, just because you say it, just because you act upon it. This is God of the Bible. And we should see Him as high and majestic. And He deserves our very awe. Right? He deserves our very reverence. And that's what He's going to teach the Israelites here today. And as we look at this Israelite uh, way of responding, we too, we want to learn from that. So now, as we uh, enter into chapter 19, the first eight verses are going to be the first part. It's going to be dealing with this God who is communicating with Moses and actually through him is communicating to the people. He's going to make a covenant or extend upon the covenant that's already been promised to them. He's going to give them something that uh, nobody has had yet in, in this way. Uh, and there are different reasons for covenants, but one reason is to know God. And that is the reason that we exist, to know God. For how can we give glory to God if we don't know Him? We must know Him in the biblical manner. In John 17, Jesus prays and He says, This is life, that they may know thee. This is eternal life that we would know Him. We want to know Him. Not just about Him. And we want to know the correct things about Him, but we want to have that real relationship with God. Do you know that's what He desires for us? 
to commune with Him. What a privilege. I think we abuse, or not abuse that privilege, we don't use that privilege enough, do we? Well, when they were in Egypt, what kind of way did they think of God? When they were slaves in Egypt, they would have been taught some of the things that the Egyptians taught. One thing they thought about God or gods is that God is actually the world, almost like a pantheism. He could be manipulated by the world. The things in the world, the people in the world. He can be manipulated by that. If you, if you do enough stuff for Him, you'll please Him, and so therefore He will bless you. See, it's about you then, isn't it? It's, it the gods were for them, rather than it being about God. The gods had the character, really, of humans. Not much above that, really. They didn't believe in one God, but they were pluralistic. That's the world we live in today. It's very pluralistic. Plural means many, many gods. Their gods were to be approached through human means, even through sexual behavior. That's how they entered into communion with God. Their gods would do them harm. Their gods would lie to them. These are some of the things that the Egyptians believed that brought it back to the Israelites. And I'm sure they mixed in some of that stuff along with some of the stuff that they heard about the true God. And so they had their own gods and I could see how easy it would be just in a short amount of time to be building a golden calf. <laughs> well, how is God going to teach these people the truth? How's He going to get it to them? We know today we have the written revelation of the Word of God and that's how faith comes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Hearing about Christ. That's how faith comes to us. It has to be through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. God works in there and He causes us to be born again. As The, the Word is the, the very seed that's planted there. He gets it to you somehow. Well, how was He going to do with the Israelites? Well, the answer is the covenant. He's going to make an extended part of the covenant that He's already promised going all the way back into Genesis. God is going to call His people to act in certain ways that would really express their relationship with Him. So says uh, commentator John Oswald. Now that's one thing, a reason for a covenant, that people would know God. And He has to make it because they cannot contact God on their own. Oh, I think I'll get a hold of God today. And, and then not know Him. I mean, you know, can you imagine an unbeliever saying, I think I'll just, I'll just start talking to God. Well, He has to initiate. Because how can we get to a spiritual being? How can we take that to Him without Him initiating that call? Another thing is to share His character. A covenant, in this sense, is that He is bringing His character his nature, His attributes, some of those can be communicated to us. God is love. How can we love people? How can we love God unless He gives it to us, right? So that's a communicable attribute. Or wisdom. You know, we have some wisdom. Uh, you can 
we don't have omnipotence, omnipresence, right? We don't have those. Those are non-communicable attributes. They're only God's and, and He will never give those to us. We'll never have those. But there is an attribute called holy that He gives to us and expects us to be that. So that's communicated, His holiness. So we're to conform to the very character of God even in His holiness. Wow. And another thing, Calvin always said, uh, there are two things that people need to know. They need to know God. They need to know themselves. But they needed to know themselves. See, the, the problem was they didn't know the problem. There was a problem here. Their intentions are good, but they're condemned by their own inability to conform to the law. As we know, the law is going to be given in chapter 20, which, uh, God willing, that's next week. They couldn't conform to that law. They proved it. For hundreds of years, 1,500 years uh, till the time of Christ at this time when this is given, and they couldn't conform to that as a whole. It was impossible. They needed to know their utter depravity. And that's what kept them from being obedient because of their nature. They needed to know that. The law stares them at the, in the face. They see that and they, they should uh, be crying out for the mercy of God for they, they should see what uh, the law is showing them. The only way that they could respond to the law was a prior grace such as the Passover, the Exodus, they went out. Have you seen all the grace that God has given? That is the reason we can respond to the law because there has been grace already granted. Are you catching this? That's the only way. Somebody cannot come up with grace on their own. God had to do that. He's been setting it up for 18 chapters now. And now chapter 19. They are able to do this when they see that only because of grace that is there. And they'd have that desire. So now we look at verses 1 and 2. Boy, did that take long enough. But actually, we're in the verses, but we haven't read them yet, have we? Let's read 1 and 2 about the arrival of the people. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim, had come to the wilderness of Sinai, and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain, the mountain of God. So as they get to their destination, they realize that they're going to camp here. Oh, this is the place we're going to be. A majestic place. You know, they're going to stay here for about a year. In the book of Numbers, it mentions that later on. We'll see that they were there for something like about 11 months. They're going to hang out there for a long time. They've been moving around since the Exodus, but now they're going to camp there at this mountain. It's near the foot of the mountain, and it's just full of majesty. Just above the floor of the wilderness rises this mountain with towering peaks that are just amazing. And that's where God had planned to meet the people and redeem the people to be... You know, this has to be somewhat ominous as you look at these the crags and, and the peaks and everything that's involved in, in this mountain. It, it was just majestic. It was an awe-full sight. 
they saw there. Now, there are discrepancies on where this is at and it's not my job to have to prove where this is at. I know it exists. I know it's in Sinai, Sinai Peninsula. There are, there's a traditional site and now there have been uh, other uh, type discoveries of where this could be. It doesn't conflict with the Word of God. Both accounts are using the Word of God to say this is where it could be. Both of them are uh, amazing sites. Uh, if if we go with those two um, finds or what people think where it is, it doesn't matter. It, it, it exists. It really uh, really happened there. This, these mountains are still there, and the people were there. And now, as we go into verse three through six, we're going to see God wants to give a message to the people, and He's going to get it through Moses. So we'll read there. Moses went up to God. And the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, here's what I've done. Because of that, Therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Wow. Have they ever heard this before? So God says, i got a message for you, Moses, to take down to the people. And there's three things involved here. He wants them to remember. He wants them to obey. And then, because of that, here are the results of obedience. Means they're a treasured possession, means they're a king and priest, and they are holy notion, holy nation. <laughs> now that is overwhelming. They're getting this message from the great almighty creator, and he says, I'm making a covenant with you. That should be staggering. Why would he do that for me? Whoa, this great God wants to do this. So the covenant takes them back to the past. And then points to where? The future. Now they were to reflect, I believe, on the history that God had done uh, through this group of people. Take it back to Abraham. They can trace it back to there. He's, He's the father. God made a promise to him. And now he's extending upon that to these group of people. But just as of late, he wants them to remember God defeated the Egyptians. That shouldn't be too hard, should it? That should be easy to remember. Have they forgotten about that a few times? <laughs> you remember the test that came? All of a sudden, that great God that delivered them back there, now what's He going to do now? Look at this, we haven't eaten. I'm starving, it's been days. <laughs> he wants them to remember that. 
You remember what I did for you. That's why we are always to look back. Look back at the cross. Look what He did for us who didn't deserve anything. And He brought... Here's the positive side. He brought Israel to Himself. I want you to remember what I did to the Egyptians and I want, to, I want you to remember what I did for you. Here's my purpose. To make them be brought to Myself. I want to bring you to Myself. God always is the one who initiates, isn't He? Did they start this? Were they looking for this? Well, they were praying, but I don't think they really knew who they were praying to or really what they were praying for. I'm not so sure they were praying that they would know God like this. He brought Israel to where they are. God delivers us from the sin that we were in bondage to in order that He might have a special relationship with us. That's what He's doing with Israel. That's what He does with us. Now, I like this in um, verse 4. You guys have got to be familiar with this. How I bore you on eagle's wings. Everybody here has always liked that verse, haven't they? You'll see it on plaques, pictures, pocket cards. I bore you on eagle's wings. Look in Deuteronomy, Exodus number, Deuteronomy 32. This is the Pentateuch, first five books of the law, or the Torah. The law. Deuteronomy 32, verse 9. For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the place of His inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of His eye. Boy, does He care. And look at this. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hover over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. What a great God. Now he compares that to the eagles. Israel's deliverance is like an eagle swooping down to hover over its young and then carry them off to safety. What they would do, it's it's said that when the time is right, the, the parent eagles would kind of push the eaglets out of their nest and they were to start flying. And if they're not doing too good, just in case they started to fall, then comes the parent eagle with those wings, catches that eaglet, and then keeps doing that until the eaglet learns how to use its wings on its own. And that's what God did to Israel. And we know that's what God does to us. What do you think of that? We're just riding on the currents, aren't we? We don't have to flap our wings. We can just ride on the currents that God has given us. <laughs> the, the eagles, the flight that they have is incredible. Isn't it? All right. Remember, remember what God did for you. Now, verse 5, he's talking about, now, therefore, and that, isn't that the way the New Testament goes so often? The book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, all throughout. Here's what God does. Okay, here's what you do. Here's part of the covenant. But He's the one that empowers us to obey. We can't do it on our own. 
You know, just remembering should motivate us to obey. If we, if we remember those things. We forget. Humans forget. And we have to be reminded. So, obedience is really based upon what God has already done. That's the reason we can obey and want to obey because we start thinking about what He's done. The law is based on a prior establishment of the relationship between them by God's good pleasure. Peter ends. So no one can work for their salvation. No amount of obedience is going to satisfy God. But once one is saved, they're obligated to act in a manner worthy of the high calling that He has given us. It's part of this covenant. So really, everything is predicated right here on verse 4. Our obedience is based or predicated upon the fact of what God has done. The delivery. The deliverance work had been done. Keep my covenant, he says. Israel is to remain faithful to God, to this covenant that was made with Abraham. And now what He's doing for them. They're just uh, saying, yes, we will. Peter N. says, Israel is to remain faithful to the covenant made with Abraham. This will be given greater substance in the following chapters. So the grace granted. Now verses 5 and 6, here's the results of the obedience. This is what happens when one is brought into God's covenant. This is the heart of the message that Moses is to take to the people. A treasured possession. Israel, you don't deserve it. He doesn't say that here. But in other places he does. They don't deserve anything. They did nothing. God can do as He pleases. He takes out of all the nations of the world, one nation, and He says, you're my special possession. Now we know, as we get in on the, the new covenant, we know that the same thing happens to us. He has a special people. But the treasured possessions, what they were. Then he says they're a kingdom of priests. Priests are a go-between God and people. They're a kingdom of priests. And one way to relate to that is even though they hadn't been priests, they don't have priests yet. The law hasn't even been made yet. It will be coming up in the very near future. But God would use Israel in respect to the other nations. If they, if they obey Him, they would be a, a priestly nation, a go-between. Of course, He used them to bring the, the Word of God and the law. And He said a holy nation. And holy here is dealing with separate. They're to be a separate nation. Separated from all the other pagan nations, God has chosen to work through them to bring together His whole plan that He's had. He's going to work through them. They will be uh, reflecting the nature of God and their relationship. Now let's go to 1 Peter 2.9 and we see how that works for us. And he's speaking to Christians here. 
But he says, but you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. Let's keep reading. His own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of Him. And look why. Because He who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And you know what Peter says after that? Here's what God has done. Therefore, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Then He tells them how they are to be separate from all the other people. Don't be acting like the world and doing the things that you used to do and they do. And He gives a list of them there. (laughs) That's motivation enough, isn't it? Here's what God has done. Now no longer live like that. You are a Christian. Don't have any reason to do that. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. Brings up this uh, thought again. And He has made us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Kings and priests. A royal priesthood. A special people. Kingdom of priest, right? Anyway, now, also, if we were to read on where we were in Peter, but uh, time is moving on, to, to actually to be holy is to live a life that reflects the very character of God. Our holy lives reflect the holy character of God. That's how we can show God's holiness when we show it in our lives. Boy, that's that's a load, isn't it? <laughs> you mean I can show God's holiness here on earth? That's right. He says, in the law, be ye holy, for I am holy. In 1 Peter, right where we were at, he's going to continue on, then he says, the same thing as he quotes out of Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. Wow. Well, what does Israel do? They say, if you do this, and what do they say? Do they deny it? Do they say, no, we don't want to be a part of that covenant? What an offer God gave them. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So he went up to the mountain. God spoke to him. said, Tell this to the people. Moses comes back to the people. Tells them that great good news. Is that great good news? Here's what you are to do. They say, We will do it. And so... There's the covenants presented. They respond with this resounding yes. And at first, Moses tells it to who? The, the elders. You know, some of the, the leaders that have been picked out. And then, 
somehow they got together, and I have to wonder if this was done in unison. Um, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. It says all the people answered. I have to wonder how did that sound with thousands, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people saying, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. Wow. Heard that all over the desert. So they signed on the dotted line. But they couldn't keep their word. Intentions are really good. They, they really meant that at the time. They wanted to be a part of this covenant. But they didn't know how holy God really is. They didn't know how sinful they were. So you see, both of those have to be known. Because when we see our sinfulness in the presence of a holy God, we see how pitiful a creature we really are. And we can either say, I don't believe it, or I don't care, or we can say, I have to throw myself on His mercy because I am sinful and He is holy. How can I even be in His presence? So, people can respond different ways. That's quite a covenant that's made with the people here, isn't it? Okay, God says, Moses then went back to God. And He said, the people said yes. <laughs> of course they did. Why would you turn that down? So God's going to be speaking to Moses here again. Let's pick it up in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Here's what God said. He said He's going to become in a thick cloud. And whenever I speak to you, this is really going to be the very voice of God so that you can depend on it. Whatever I say, whenever this is coming from God, thus saith the Lord. You, you better listen. So, God speaking to Moses. Then Yahweh, the covenant of God, said to Moses, Go to the people. Consecrate them today. And tomorrow... And let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down to the mountain to the people, sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Okay. The Lord tells Moses, that not only did He want the people to be willing to obey, but they were to be sensitive to hear when God spoke. You see that in verse 9 there. 
This is there to be very sensitive to communication from God to them. Ready to hear, right? Ready to hear. God assured Moses that He would give additional evidences for the people, that they would know that this is God amongst them. That this was very much the Word of God. Now in 10 through 15, we see a consecration, a setting apart for service. They're there. This is the time. God has presented the covenant. They say yes to the covenant. He says, okay, I want to prepare you before you meet me. God kept revealing more and more of Himself and it was time to show a little bit of His holiness. To peel it back, per se. So the brightness or the darkness, (laughs) I say darkness, it's because of all the things that are going on in this mountain. It's kind of dark looking and same time you're going to flash as a lightning hey you like on your bulletins today it's not the the, the, the verse that I'd like to have but it sure has a good picture on, on the front cover with a lightning bolt and you can imagine that multiplied with what is going on here he had shown his power he had shown his providence that's what he's done so far right he's the only holy one that there is he's absolutely transcendent over all of His creation, He is unapproachable by human initiative. That means on somebody says, I think I'll just go up to God. Mose you on up there. Oh, sorry about that. Incapable. He is totally incapable of being manipulated by any kind of force, people, people's desires. They needed to know who was inviting them to His place, to His presence. So they have to prepare themselves. They have to get closer to the mountain now. But not too close. But I want you to come up now. I want you to be prepared before you do that. Uh, It's going to take you a couple of days to prepare. On the third day, then that's when I want you to come up there. And, And when you come up there, don't come up there until there is a loud, long trumpet blast. They're about to do as no other nation had ever done. They're going to meet their heavenly king in a way that a nation has never done. Now there has been appearances where God has made to people, and of course Moses and Abraham, and you can think of uh, Jacob and uh, Adam, you know, and through you know, and, and Genesis. But now we're talking about a whole nation, and they're going to listen to what His voice is bringing forth here. Two days. Prepare themselves. One way they were to consecrate themselves is wash their clothes. Now, this could be compared to Moses earlier whenever he was there at the mount by himself and God said, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. I want you to recognize the difference between me and you and this presence and this place that we're dealing with. The clean clothes, I would say, would be a good representative of a clean heart. It's, but the outward needs to be showing what the inside is. They were to be clean and pure outside and inside. And they're definitely to be at a distance. If you look in Exodus 24, 1 and 2, 
Now he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. We're kind of getting a, almost like a tripart tabernacle, which is going to come later. You're going to have the court of the Gentiles. You remember at the time of Jesus, there was a court of the Gentiles where they could come and worship and pray, but they could only go so far. The Jewish people would go into, you know, there was the court of the women and that kind of thing. The, 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 the Jewish people where they'd bring the sacrifices, but that was it and they couldn't go any further. Then you had priests who would do their ministry daily in that tabernacle or in the temple. And, but they could only go so far. They couldn't go all the way back to the Holy of Holies. There was one who could, and it was only once a year, and that was the high priest. So Aaron gets some privileges here too, as we'll see later on. But right now, it's Moses. Moses is going to be the one talking to God. He can get the closest. The other ones will come up there with him to a certain degree, but they stop. And then the people can come over so far, but not as quiet as far as where the elders are. <laughs> so this is the kind of thing that's going on. God is establishing very visible things here for them to realize that when, when you come up to God's holiness, uh, there has to be a distance. Now, if we were to go to the, the White House today, let's say we had an invitation to a dinner at the White House, you probably say, that's, no, that's okay. <laughs> I'll just stay home. Uh, different circumstances, different times. Let's say you get invited to the White House to have dinner with the president. Now, if uh, you go to the White House, do you think you're just going to go up, walk on the sidewalk, go through the gate and just uh, just kind of knock on the door or just kind of walk on in? you think you could do that? Uh, I don't think that's going to work at all. You might stand outside the gate for quite some time, even though you have an invitation. You don't just simply walk up in street clothes and walk on in. The way is barred, isn't it? You must prepare yourself and then wait until you are received. And that is what God is establishing here. He's saying, hey, listen... uh, I'm not one that's just a little bit over you, like the gods of Egypt... We have a big separation here. And even when I do tell you to come close, you have to be very careful. There's a distance between a holy God and a sinful man. And God insisted that there would be a boundary marked off that they would not cross that boundary. He has a high, elevated, exalted position. Even though we can go to the throne now, and offer up prayers and petitions and go talk to Him, He still wants us to recognize that uh, exalted position that He has. It was like saying, I don't want you to be glib with me. I don't want this whole thing to be a frivolity. When you're in my presence, I want you to realize what a privilege it is and and the situation that, that it is. That's having a high view of God. The Puritans had that concept of God. If you'll read their writings, if you'll read their prayers, they weren't legalistic whatsoever. Some of the Puritan writings are some of the greatest writings the church has outside the Bible. 
John Owen, John Bunyan. We can go on and on with uh, Jeremiah Burroughs and on and on with all the different books and the writings that they have. But they had such a concept of God that puts us to shame. They saw Him in a way and they took it so seriously of this God. But yet they enjoyed. They enjoyed life. A lot of people think, oh, that puritanical view and they have I Victorian, you know, that, that kind of thought and that, that's uh, conceived by minds of people who didn't know Christians. These are people to certainly emulate. Their doctrine was right. Their living was right. They had a respectful understanding of God. And in, in a church today, in the body of Christ, there's such a shallow view of God. What we're talking about here, people would say, I would rather not like to think about that God in the Old Testament, the, the thunders and lightnings and God just being so terrible there. I don't want that kind of God. That leads to a shallow life. Because they don't have a high view of Him. If He's held in the highest respect... Did you know that you'll have deep roots in your spiritual life? The more you hold Him up higher, the roots will sink deep and your own spiritual life will show forth. God is the only wise God. He's the Creator, the Maker, the Sovereign Lord, the Master. He tells me what to do and I do it. Right? That's the way that we're to be. We don't have an option. God knows what's best. We have command. And one command, and that's to do His will. You may not absolutely know every little detail what you're supposed to do, but we want His will. We want to line up with His will. Here's my will. This is what I'd like, God. But if this is not right, hey, just shove it on out of the way because I want Your will. Right? Isn't that really why we pray? Ultimately, it's about knowing His will. Do you remember Nadab and Abihu? Well, we haven't touched on Nadab and Abihu yet. We saw that in chapter 24, those names. They'll pop up again. But they're priests. They happen to be Aaron's sons. And they are given commands to do. And they know specifically what they're supposed to do. Well, they took it on their own to do it their way. Specific commands by God. And that's really simple. Here's all you have to do. Here's what you do. So he, he, and he gives those to uh, the priest at a later time. But he had to kill them to show how serious he was. And if you do something different and start doing a little improvisation, <laughs> he had to show that he was serious. And you think of Uzzah, Uzzah who caught the ark while it was on the wagon, <laughs> which it wasn't supposed to be in the first place, supposed to be on poles, it was a little bit easier. And that was dealing with David at the time, wasn't it? Bringing that thing back and they put that thing on the cart. A easier to do that. It said to always put it on the poles and carry it that way. It starts to fall and what do you think? Well, I don't want this thing to touch the ground, so he's going to catch it. Keep it from doing that. Immediately, God just took his life. That's how holy God is. God hasn't changed. We know the God of the New Testament is the same as the Old. He's the same today, yesterday, and forever. We see his grace. We're not doing these ceremonial laws that they do. We don't have the tabernacle and the temple and all that stuff. 
so therefore we don't have that problem. But I still think He's taking some people from us for their lives are not reflecting His holiness. And so their lives are aborted for they're not showing the holiness of God. Others live on and they just embarrass, make an embarrassment to the Christian community and God. Others are not even believers and He lets them live on and tell their false theologies. I hate false theology. You guys hate that? Boy, it's dominating on TV and radio today, isn't it? This is, this is God. He hasn't changed. But you see, He's so gracious in showing how it's supposed to be. And it's for our good. The Old Testament worship, look how it was structured. It underlined man's sinfulness. At the same time, it highlighted God's holiness. His otherness. The fence around the tabernacle. Seven foot high. Most men aren't seven feet high, so they couldn't see in. You have the veil in the Holy of Holies to keep the rest of the priests from going in there. And the people could only go so far up to the tabernacle. The priest ministered daily. Do you see there were boundaries the way that God set that up? Now, the New Testament, because of the cross and because of the resurrection, now lets us burst in to the Holy of Holies. The veil was torn at His death. We go right on in there. Look in John 1.14. Jesus is the Word. The Word becomes flesh, dwells among them. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was of He of whom I said, He who comes after Me is preferred before Me, for He was before Me. And of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. It gets better. Are you ready? For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The veil was torn. We entered through the person of Jesus Christ. We have access right on in to the throne room of the King. We're not held back. There's a new way. Hebrews 10 talks about that new way. The new way is now that spiritual way. We've, we've made it. So, we see some things there, how they're to be consecrated, set apart, washing the clothes. And... Uh, just being sanctified, and then says uh, Moses says uh, they were to abstain also during that time, and there would be a summons given. They would wait for the blast, the ram's horn, and then God would invite them to Him at arm's length, but only at the trumpet sound could they approach God. So they, they have to hear that. Now God has made that very clear. But he has to repeat it. In fact, I, mentioned, I think it's mentioned three times. We'll, we might go over that. Now we get into what I think is the best part. <laughs> the reason I say that is now it focuses on the very holiness of God as we near the end of our message today. 
Just uh, think of the loud thundering and lightning and clouds that we've had recently, (laughs) which we might have today and tomorrow and Tuesday. We might have a day off from that, and then Thursday probably start blasting it. Only could only multiply that about a hundred times with the thunderings and lightnings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of. I think it's time for some wisdom for the Israelites. I think it's time that they're going to have to fear God. If you don't have the fear of God, how can you get any wisdom, right? So. We know that God is coming down upon that mountain. Matter of fact, I'm not going to turn there, but in Deuteronomy 33.2 and then Acts 7.53, which shortly He's going to be showing that um, they, the law is going to be given to them and angels are even going to be coming to administer that as it's stated in Deuteronomy and Stephen mentioned that, bringing the law. God is pulling out all the stops. I mean, the display here is just magnificent. And I've got a feeling their nerves must have been on end here when they heard that blast and they looked out their tents, just kind of pulled it back and saw this mountain. All of a sudden, you hear people yelling, Oh my, look at the smoke, the fire! And the trumpet is just blowing loud. They're realizing that God had come down on the mountain. I think they had to be very fearful of this. Have you ever been fearful of some uh, some thunderings and lightnings that have just missed your house? And I mean it's loud and, and you hear coffee cups and everything else shaking. You ever been on an earthquake? You know what? You know, I mean just blow it up about who knows how many more times. The decibel level had to be incredible. This had to be noisy. Boy, I think they had to be very fearful of this. But they've already been told that that's God coming down. Now, this is a critical point in history. I mean, this is really critical. The law is going to be given shortly. God right now here is showing that I'm going to have an encounter with you and you are not going to forget about it. The only problem is they will. They'll forget here and there. Uh, He's going to invite them into a covenant with Him. So you have the smoke, the fire, the quaking, and a louder trumpet as we move on through that section. This is the awesome presence, the power of God. Turn to Psalm 18. Psalms have a lot to say about a powerful God. Psalm 18. I won't read the whole psalm, but let's read a few verses. Start out verse 1. I will love You, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. We ever sing those? My God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol. Look down in verse 7. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. 
He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under His feet and He rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness His secret place. His canopy around Him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies from the brightness before Him. His thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered His voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Now, this is at a different time, but um, this is being delivered uh, from the hand of Saul, as David writes this. This is about a sovereign God. And, you know, the the words that were put here were to stress how great he is. Uh, trying to get a picture here. David trying to draw for us. This this is not a God to be playing around with. Uh, this God is great. Go to Deuteronomy 5. 22-23. Then, this is like when the Ten Commandments are given in the Deuteronomy section. They're reviewing them there. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly in the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness with a loud voice. And He added no more. And He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to Me. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to Me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Surely the Yahweh our God has shown us His glory and His greatness. And we have heard His voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet He still lives. God spoke with man and man still lives. What a magnificent display of the awesomeness of God. The whole area is just shaking and quaking and trembling. The people are trembling. Moses is trembling. A whole granite mountain, big as it is and high as it is, is shaking. And there's constant thundering and lightning and clouds of smoke and fire. Horn blasts keep getting louder. It was loud enough. It's getting louder and louder. How could they ever have forgotten this awful scene? Why would you ever want to break covenant with God when He's this kind of holy God? God is saying, come up, Moses. Can you imagine how he must have felt when all this was going on and he had to get up closer than the others? Moses is trembling. Look in Hebrews 12.21. The Hebrew writer tells us that. This was a significant event. We're right in it. We're right in the midst here, folks. I mean, this is a great text of the Bible to be in. Where else would you want to be? Twelve twenty one Hebrews, and so terrifying was the sight 
that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Look at this, verse 20. Back up. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. And the rest of the story for us Christians, but you have come to Mount Zion. Not to that mountain of Sinai, but Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly. Thank you, Lord. I want to know that you're holy. But thank you that I'm not in that sight, in that sense, for I know that would scare the daylights out of me. And it did. It was dark there, except for the lightning and the fire. The burning bush. Boy, that was nothing to Moses compared to this, was it? A little burning bush. Well, that was amazing, but now we've got a whole mountain and all this. Two million people witnessed this. Getting ready to close out here. You ready? God has to give them a further warning. Just in case they don't believe it, or they their curiosity kills the cat. Right? Curiosity wants them to move a little bit closer. What is that? Man, I have got to see this. God knew there'd be some people. You know, there's always those some people. <laughs> you ever notice that? Some people have just got to test out some things. He knew there's going to be some that would not obey and approach the mountain in their own way. And Moses had to warn them again. Now, in verse 20, the Lord came down Mount Sinai, top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And he says, okay, Moses, I know you've been up here. You've been up here. Now I, I bring you up here again. And he said, okay, I want you to go down. <laughs> Going up to that mountain, he's got to be a tired 80-year-old man by this time. <laughs> I want you to go back down. Because I want you to warn the people lest they break through to gaze upon Yahweh. They want to take a look at Him because they'll die. Uh, you know, the priests who come near the Lord, you know, they're coming a little closer, consecrate themselves and make sure that they don't come all the way as, as you do them. Lest the Lord break out against them. Make sure they're consecrated. You know what Moses said? But, you know, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. I've already told them that. <laughs> Moses. God, God is saying this. Away, get down, and then, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. Go down there. And you tell them this. They already know it, Lord. You know, people have short memories. Or they just don't get it. That's that's a nature that we have sometimes. Next time when he's going to go up, he's going to go take Aaron. Aaron's going to play a key role in being a high priest. We're going to be seeing that set up. This is kind of like a precursor uh, with him being a high priest. 
and entering into the Holy of Holies. He'd be the high priest. His sons would be the priests, but he would go in there, you know, the once a year thing. The other priest couldn't go there. God gave a warning three times. Verses 12 and 13, you should set bounds to the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves, lack of time. Uh, 21 and 22, the Lord said to Moses, go down, warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord. Many of them perish. Uh, then we have... Um, Verse 24, Away, get down, then come up, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest He break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. (laughs) He told them again, Don't you dare go across those boundaries. He knows they're prone to rebellion. We sing that song, don't we? We're prone to wander (laughs) like sheep. This is why we need to keep in the Word every day. Because we'll forget. You guys been in the Word every day? Every day? You'll be prone to wander. (laughs) Stay in the Word. The penalty for them was death. Arrows, stones. I don't know who's throwing them. It doesn't say, but there's going to be stones and arrows coming out of there and you'll be a dead man. And even if your animals come up there, they'll be dead too. This is how serious it is. A triple warning. I think they better take heed. What do you think? God is stressing what kind of a holy God He is. Why did God arrange this whole meeting anyway? This sounds like He's on some kind of a holy trip. Now, he just wants the attention and the glory to all go to Him. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely right. Always. It's that way today. It shouldn't be any other way because it would be a lie. God has to demand glory. Look at Exodus 20, 20. Here's the deal. Whenever He's given the Ten Commandments to Moses, Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Okay, and that's interesting. Do not fear. We've been hearing the fearing. Well, there is a... And I'll get the balance on this. There is a healthy fear of God. And that is to have a loving, reverential, respectful, awing relationship with God. It's not a thing that you're just afraid of God and you don't have a relationship with Him and you want to get away and Him get away. But it's still having that proper fear so that we'll have wisdom from Him. But He says, don't fear. Don't be afraid of God. For God has come to test you that His fear may be before you. There's the good kind of fear. The holy, reverential, respectful, honoring all of God in relationship. Why? So that you may not sin. That is what this is all about. If we see His holiness and we see His law, it's to keep us from sinning. For Christians, it's to keep us from sinning. For unbelievers, it's to show them that they need mercy and they need to throw themselves on God's mercy because they have no hope. Isn't that amazing? God is gracious in giving this. A healthy fear of God can deter us from sin. God wants a people who are holy, who are righteous, that are 
uh, pure, that, that are respectful. And that's the concept that he wants when we think about his presence. To finish it off here, kind of summing up the whole chapter, God wants us to realize what He has done for us. What kind of privileges He has given us being a holy nation, a special people, treasured possession. We are exhorted to know what He has done for us to be in the covenant. At the same time, He is holy and we're never to presume upon Him but desire to be holy. And I'm going to ask Debbie and any of the band who wants to play Holy, 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 that's hymn number one, um, to do that because I think it's a perfect setting. And in the meantime, let's pray. Father, we thank You for being a holy God and for showing us Your holiness. For it is a good thing throughout the Old Testament when You make Your judgments, You are holy. And when You save people, You are holy. When you do about any action, it's always the perfect, righteous thing to do. And we are in awe as we stand back and think of that. In Jesus' name, Amen.